Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Wahoo wah. Anyone got a little energy they can loan me this morning? <laughs> so how many of you attended last night's bicentennial celebration? Wasn't that fabulous? Oh my God. So that's the adrenaline I'm on this morning uh, and a little coffee. So that really was a very special night. If you missed it, I think there, there was a recording. You'll miss the great performers that sang, sorry. Um, we couldn't record those, but it really was a fabulous uh, performance. I, I'm not really a concert, music, and entertainment. It was really a dynamic night on the lawn, very special. Um, I'm Althea Brooks, and I'm Senior Director in Lifetime Learning in the Office of Engagement, and I'd like to welcome you to Newcomb Hall Theater. It's the first time we've given a talk here in Newcomb. Um, I like it. Anybody else? Yes. Um, also, you had a very special breakfast this morning. Not your normal bagel and coffee. Yeah? <laughs> All right, we're returning to the bagels and coffees on the 21st, so <laughs> don't get used to that. So we partner with the Alumni Association. We're not at Alumni Hall today. We're here in this very special theater for Bicentennial, so welcome. Uh, I, we have a, a fantastic, wonderful speaker this morning. He's world-renowned. Uh, last year, he spent the entire year at Oxford University, uh, but he's back with us this year, and we are really excited just to, to, just to have him speak with us this morning on Thomas Jefferson. So I'm going to turn the mic over in just a second. Just a couple of uh, things before we begin. Um, the bookstore is out. Bookstore will be selling, uh, uni university bookstore will be selling uh, Alan Taylor's book, and he'll be signing books afterwards. So hopefully you'll pick up a copy and, and buy one for a friend. Uh, especially after you hear this great talk. We've passed out those wonderful orange feedback cards. We, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, that will help us in planning next year's More Than the Score. We're already thinking about speakers, so give us your thoughts on that. Um, cell phones, go ahead and power down for the morning. Um, turn it off and enjoy the talk. And we are recording today. We are doing a live feed for those that could not be with us today. Uh, Patrick Stanley, our... Um, manager for dig digital um, programs. He's here and he's doing a video recording. And then we also have our uh, podcast that will be available for download uh, in the next uh, few days or a week or so. I'm going to turn things over to Cindy Fredericks. And just so you know, Cindy is my direct report. I report to her. Uh, she is Associate Vice President for the Office of Engagement. She is a powerhouse and full of energy. She's the extrovert in our office. I'm the introvert. <laughs> She's always full of energy. So she'll be introducing our speaker. I hope you're excited about the game today. So anyone who's going to the game, who's going to the game today? Okay. Just so you know, you need a clear plastic bag, ladies. You can't take your purses into the game. Um, so if you don't have that uh, clear plastic bag, you'll want to downsize and put things into your pockets. Um, so you can't, get to, I think you can take like a, a four by six little wallet or something like that, but no big purses allowed in the game. So I don't want you to get to the, the, uh, to the stadium and have to turn around and, and take your purses back. So just remember that. Let me make sure I didn't have any other notes here. Um, I think that's it. My time's up. So thank you for being here. Wahoo! Thanks, Althea. And I've worked with Althea. The Office of Engagement and University Advancement began just 11 years ago, and Althea uh, began the Lifetime Learning Program with me back then. And so we've been partners through this whole time. We have a great time. And we have a great time because our alumni, parents, and friends are so interested in connecting with each other and continuing their learning at this great institution that is celebrating 200 years. So I thank you for your commitment. I've had a chance to speak with several of you this morning. And what gets Althea and I up every day is to be able to provide these wonderful programs for you. So thank you for participating and welcome. But now it's my pleasure to introduce our speaker. Alan Taylor is the University of Virginia's Thomas Jefferson Memorial Foundation Professor of History. A graduate of Colby College and Brandeis University, Mr. Taylor is an award-winning teacher, scholar, and author. Prior to joining the faculty at UVA, Mr. Taylor taught at the University of California, Davis, and Boston University. In 2002, he won the UC Davis Award for Teaching and Scholarly Achievement 
and the Phi Beta Kappa Northern California Association Teaching Excellence Award. In 2016, he was elected to the, Acad or the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. Alan Taylor is highly regarded as a history a historian and is described as a pioneer in microhistory, which examines episodes, places, and small groups of people so that broader meanings become apparent. Mr. Taylor has published nine books, including The Eternal Enemy, Slavery and War in Virginia, and William Cooperstown, Power and Persuasion on the Frontier of the Early Republic. Both of these books won a Pulitzer Prize, and this recognition places Mr. Taylor in a very elite group of individuals who have received two Pulitzer Prize awards. We are so honored to have Mr. Taylor join us for our very special bicentennial More Than the Score lecture, and please join me in giving Alan a very warm welcome. Very kind. Thank you. Thank you very much for that very kind introduction. And I'm appreciative to Althea and Cindy for arranging all of this and grateful to all of you for coming in this morning. Um, so a lot of people have asked me why, why I chose to uh, come to the University of Virginia. Now, I know that that is a dumb question to all of you. <laughs> Uh, and, and one reason is because it's a public university which is committed to excellence. And so an, odd, an opportunity to teach at a university like Virginia is an opportunity to participate in the central mission of the United States, which is to provide social mobility and opportunity to all. Uh, and the second reason is I would met a lot of UVA alums, and every single one of them loved their experience here and remained very loyal to the institution on a level that was different than I had heard from any other university. So it has been a great opportunity for me to come here. I'm currently working on a book which is about the changing meanings uh, and changing levels of public support for education, particularly in Thomas Jefferson's lifetime. And of course, his great achievement uh, during that lifetime uh, in the realm of education was the founding of the University of Virginia. But he was seeking to broaden educational opportunity at every level. And in that, he experienced a, a great deal of frustration in his own lifetime, although he did find it very fulfilling to create UVA as the capstone for the sort of educational system that he wanted for Virginia. Now, in the course of this research, um, I came across the oldest surviving letter written by Thomas Jefferson, and I think it's revealing that it focuses on education. It's a concern with his education, and he writes this line. It would be to my advantage to go to college in the first place as long as I stay at the mountain, which refers uh, to the base of what would become Monticello, the loss of one-fourth of my time is inevitable by companies coming here and detaining me from school. So he is the first and probably the last college student to justify going to college by saying he would party less. <laughs> Thomas Jefferson was a very unusual man. <laughs> and. Uh, Although he did study extremely hard, it wasn't all study when he went to the College of William and Mary. Indeed, when he... I can get this to go forward. Maybe not. It's supposed to be on. Let me try using the computer. Oh. Well, this is the one I wanted. Okay. So I can just make it work by hand here. But thank you, Alvin. Okay. I'm a historian for a reason. I'm more comfortable with technology of the 18th century. <laughs> uh, so Jefferson later in 1816, he made this confession. Uh, it, it turns out that William and Mary was a very rowdy place and that there were regular battles, town gown battles between the students and, and the locals. And so he wrote this, that he recalled the regular annual riots and battles between the students of William and Mary with the town boys, 
before the revolution, and then a Latin phrase, which translates as, of which I was a part. And indeed, the, the most notorious riot to occur occurred while he was there in July of 1761. The clash began when some students, and I don't know whether Jefferson was one of them, was attending Sunday services in the parish church, and they were sitting in the gallery. And for some reason, they began spitting, and according to one account, urinating on the townspeople below. Again, I did not say Jefferson was one of them. They were chased out of the church by angry villagers, and they retreated to the college where the, the college professors decided this was a grave insult, how the students had been treated. So the, the, the professors armed themselves with cutlasses and pistols and led the students in a counterattack on the town and they were victorious in defeating the young men of the town, basically beating them up, and they took two of them back as prisoners and then whipped them at the college while the collegians drank, quote, bumbo and Madeira. I want to assure you, nothing like that goes on at UVA today. <laughs> now, Jefferson had a powerful sense then that the revolution needed to rearrange things in Virginia, including education, because like everyone in a leadership position of his generation, they believed that education helped to prepare the next generation, and it could reshape that generation in positive ways. The the founders of the Republic were learned men, and they knew that the form of government they were creating was radical. They were creating a republic, which is a government with the, based on the premise that sovereignty derives from the body of the citizens, from the people. This is rare, very different from all the other governments in the world of that time, which were primarily monarchies and aristocracies. And they were also embarking on this experiment in a, co in a uh, confederation of 13 states, all of them with Republican governments, newly created by the revolution. And so this is a Republican form of government on a geographic scale unprecedented in human history. And they knew from reading ancient history that republics of the past had been unstable, they had been short-lived, and they had usually collapsed and been replaced by some form of tyranny. And the classic example of this, which they kept citing, was ancient Rome, in which Julius Caesar had seized power because people were so weary of the chaos of the Republic. And he would at least bring order to things, a very self-serving order, but at least it was order. And so the founders of the Republic were not sure that what they had created could survive because they knew that republics had always failed in the past. And they knew that the Republic they created was the only one like it in the world. There were some small republics in Europe, but they were on a very small scale. There were a few city-states or Swiss cantons. And so the world was a dangerous place of hostile empires that were ideologically hostile to what the Americans were creating. So this adds another level of difficulty to their experiment. So if the republic is to survive, they believed that people had to be prepared to defend it in every possible way. And they meant especially that they had to be watchdogs over their own liberty. And they had to sustain two qualities that would be essential for them to do that. One they called virtue. Now virtue is a word today that means a, a somewhat different than what they meant in the 18th century. Virtue meant a devotion to the common good. 
a devotion to the common good of your country that transcended your individual self-interest. And they understood that individual self-interest was natural to people. And so they had to learn virtue. They had to learn the capacity to think of a common good bigger than themselves and devote themselves to it if the republic was to last. So this is a learned behavior rather than a natural instinct. The second was rational inquiry, an ability to think through evidence to reach conclusions that made sense because they knew that people would read and hear many different things and they would have to decide between them. And what would be the basis of decision? Would it be prejudice? Would it be emotion? Or would it be reason? And Jefferson very much hoped it would be reason. Now, the men of that generation felt they'd been lucky that they'd won the revolution in many ways because they did not think that the American people were united through the revolution. They knew they weren't. It was a bitter civil war in which there were many loyalists who fought against it. They also knew that by the end of the war, many Americans were sitting out on the sidelines and not helping the war effort because it became more difficult. And so they thought it had been a very close-run Thing to win independence and to establish Republican government. They thought there needed to be more virtue and more reason taught to more Americans if they were to keep this new form of government. One of the thinkers was Thomas Jefferson's good friend, Benjamin Rush. He said, quote, we have changed our forms of government but it remains yet to effect a revolution in our principles, opinions, and manners so as to accommodate them to the forms of government that we have adopted. Schools needed to produce well-informed protectors of republican government. Quote, if the common people are ignorant and vicious, a republican nation can never long endure. Now, they reasoned that it was easy, relatively easy, to sustain a monarchy and aristocracy. That's why there were so many of them in the world. That what monarchies and aristocracies did was they kept the common people ignorant. And then they dazzled them with show, with pageantry, with large military establishments and parades. And so that sustaining a monarchy and aristocracy was relatively simple. But for a republic, it was hard work. And it could only be sustained through improved education. People had to be persuaded to be virtuous and rational citizens if this experiment in government was to succeed. Now for Jefferson then, he looked around Virginia, the Virginia of 1776, and he felt there was not the educational system necessary to make independence and republicanism endure. Virginia was like most states in this new country. It had no public education. It had no public schools at any level. It had one college. It was small. It educated at a given time about 50 or so students. They came only from the various wealthiest, most prestigious class. This was typical around the country. Less than 1% of American males went, had any college education at all. There were public school systems of a sort only in the New England states. And even there, they were sustained by localities rather than by state governments. And so the founders of the republic on the one hand are saying we need educated voters to keep what we've created, but they did not then have educated voters. So they needed then through their state governments, not through the federal government, but through the state governments to create educational systems that were more comprehensive. And the man other than Benjamin Rush who'd thought hardest about this was Thomas Jefferson. 
Jefferson in 1778 proposed for Virginia a comprehensive system in which every locality would have a public school for the first time. He wanted to subdivide the counties of Virginia into what he called hundreds. A hundred was the equivalent of the size of a New England town. He envied the town governments of New England because they brought government more closely to local people. He wanted these newly created hundreds in every county for the voters within them to build their own school, to hire their own teacher, and pay that teacher, and to pay the taxes then that were necessary to support it. They would be local taxes. But this would be a state-mandated system that would require each one of the hundreds to do exactly this. Then he wanted there to be a smaller subset of academies, the equivalent of what we would call a high school. And these would be located probably one in each county. Now he wanted the education that was provided at the, at the lowest level to be freely available to all white boys and girls. So that's pretty radical for its time in extending it to girls. He then wanted that the very best student in every one of these hundred schools who could not afford it would get a charity scholarship to go to the academy in the county. And then every year the best student in each county who could not afford to go to college would get a scholarship paid by the public that would go to the university, which at that time he imagined would be William and Mary. So this is a radical feature, that there is an opportunity for people who do not have the means for higher education to receive public funding to go, so, to go and do so. Now it would be a relatively small number. Now Jefferson himself was a man born into a family of wealth and prestige and privilege. But he also developed a great sense of responsibility. So he liked to make a distinction between what he saw as the artificial aristocracy, which was just an aristocracy of wealth and was selfish, and what he called a natural aristocracy, who were men of ability, who proved their ability by their devotion to the public. And it would be certified by running for office and having the voters say, yes, you are the person to lead us. So Jefferson is believing that his educational system will achieve two political goals. And he defined the purpose of this system primarily in political terms. On the one hand, what it's to do is to prepare the voters of Virginia to be informed voters who will determine who are the natural aristocrats who should govern the state. Second, it is to train the very best and the brightest of Virginia to be those leaders who will be devoted to the public good. Now, this is a system that Jefferson insisted would promote the right level of social mobility. He said, quote, worth and genius sought out from every condition of life and completely prepared by education for defeating the competition of wealth and birth for public trust. It's a system that the state of Virginia was not prepared for. It's other leaders in Jefferson's mind proved that they were not sufficiently natural aristocrats because they did not adopt this full system. Now, to be fair to them, at the time it was war, and it was a very difficult, expensive, hard-fought war in which British and Loyalist forces invaded and ravaged much of Virginia. There was not extra money to do anything. Jefferson hoped that after the war was over, that leaders would be prepared to implement his full system. They weren't. In 1796, they essentially punted on the system by saying, we think it's a great idea, we recommend it to you in the counties, 
uh, and we're really, really behind you, but we're not going to provide you with any money for it. Now, Jefferson's system had been that the state should require localities to levy taxes to create it. If you instead make it optional, you can well imagine what each county will do. Each county decided they did not want to tax themselves. So of the over 100 counties in Virginia of 1800, only one of them even partially implemented Jefferson's system. Jefferson was furious about this, and he primarily blamed the, what he saw as the artificial aristocrats who ran Virginia counties as lacking in public spirit. And he's not the only person who saw it this way. Other well-educated Virginians did the same. One was William Wirt, who would later become the Attorney General of the United States and would be a presidential candidate. He praised, quote, the astonishing greatness of the plan to rescue genius from obscurity, indigence, and ignorance while giving stability and solid glory to the republic. And he was dismayed that Virginia failed to adopt this plan. He worried that Virginians lacked, quote, the animating soul of a republic. I mean public spirit. There seems to be but one object throughout the state to grow rich." So his view and that of Jefferson's is that the pursuit of money was trumping virtue in Virginia and therefore this system was not being created. But Wirt and Jefferson are only half right in blaming the county leaders for this. Because again, in fairness, it has to be said the state leaders were not providing any funding for the system. And then they're not doing so, not simply because they're selfish, but because they want to win re-election. And they're worried that their voters don't want to pay taxes, even for an educational system. One of the legislators who was willing to vote for taxes to fund an educational system lost his bid for re-election. And he blamed voters for, quote, being so ignorant as they are that our gentlemen are not more anxious to get learning and knowledge." End quote. He then wrote a satirical story which imagined that common Virginians preferred to buy new boots for their sons, peach brandy for themselves, and bonnets for their wives rather than fund education. He doubted that there were, was, quote, sense enough among the great bulk of the people to prevent a few cunning, ambitious men from taking our houses and land and everything else away from us. And then how shall we get boots, bonnets, and brandy?" End quote. So this then is the challenge. On the one hand, there are these leaders are saying that in order to preserve popular sovereignty, we need better education or tricksters will come along and deceive the people into abandoning their republic. And we will end up being run by American Caesars. But then they need to tax the people in order to create these schools that will enable the people to defend their interests. And it turns out that many of the voters don't want to pay taxes at any higher level. This is a dilemma. And then this is a highly rural society. Over 95% of people lived in the countryside, and a fair number of them thought that funding for education would primarily benefit other people than themselves. One man said, quote, college learned persons give themselves great airs, are proud, and the fewer of them we have amongst us, the better. This man preferred, quote, the plain, simple, honest, matter-of-fact republicanism. Who wants Latin and Greek and abstruse mathematics in a country like this? Okay. So when you have a lot of voters that believe that education really should just be private, it's hard to create the kind of public system that Jefferson felt was essential for Virginia. 
And it meant that in his lifetime, there was only money enough allocated by the state to do one of the three things he wanted to accomplish. Remember, he wanted a system of comprehensive public schools at the local level, county academies, and a great university. Well, they were able to establish the great university, and there was no money left over for the other functions, and there would be no comprehensive public education in Virginia until the late 1860s after the Civil War. Now, meanwhile, uh, public education was surging ahead in other states, particularly in the northern states. And college education particularly surged in the 20th century. As of the year 1900, approximately 4% of Americans received a college education. By 1980, that had risen to 50%. So there is a dramatic expansion of higher education, particularly in the 20th century. And this was a time in which there was quite robust public support for expanding public education at every level. Along the way, uh, the justification for higher education shifted. So I have been speaking about how the founders imagined justifying education in political terms, that it was necessary to save the republic. It was necessary to teach core values of virtue and of reason. It was necessary to teach this broadly so that the electorate was well-educated in these basic habits of mind. But it's also necessary to train leaders so that they will preserve the republic rather than pursue their own self-interest. But in the 20th century, there's been a shift in how education, particularly college education, has been justified. And it's been away from an emphasis on political purpose toward economic benefit. So increasingly, when you see defenses of investment, especially in public higher education, it's been for the economic growth benefit in the aggregate, but it's been especially in terms of the enhanced income potential that students can make in their lifetime. And so you'll often see these pieces that will run that will say something along the orders of, as one recent piece in the New York Times, recent meaning last year, uh, said that a college graduate could expect to make 500,000 more dollars in their life uh, than if that person had not gone. Now, this argument is, I would argue, necessary but not sufficient to sustain public education. I'm not arguing that it's wrong. I do think people uh, can enrich themselves individually uh, in every possible way, but not just financially, by going to college. The problem comes when our public discourse says that's the only justification. Because what it does is it redefines what had been a public good into simply an individual benefit. And if you do that, then it is all too tempting for legislators when they have to make tough funding decisions to say, well, you know who should pay for college education? It should just be the individual who's benefiting from it. And so in recent years, particularly after every recession, there have been massive budget cuts that have hurt public education and especially public higher education. So since the 2008 election across the nation, there have been 17% cuts. What this has meant is that students are more dependent than ever before on student loans. And the debt burdens for students are becoming quite alarmingly high. It averaged in 2016 $37,000 in debt per student. Now this does have a collective drag on the economy because people who have to pay off these debts, they therefore delay making other purchases in their lives such as house purchases. Now, it would be much worse if not for the enhanced donations that come from alums who have helped to soften this blow for many students, making financial aid more widely available. 
but it is a general problem in education now that the public in general sees this more as a private benefit than a public good. So I want to say that we would all benefit if we returned to the message of the founders to supplement the economic argument for higher education. There are public benefits from having well-educated people in a state, and these benefits are not restricted just to the people who receive that education. They do generate economic growth for the entire state. They may improve the culture of the state. They certainly can reduce crime rates to have better educated people at every level. And so I just want to then close not with words from Thomas Jefferson, but with Benjamin Franklin, who is alleged to have said right after completing the federal constitution when he was accosted by a woman in the street of Philadelphia, what exactly have you created? And he replied, quote, a republic, madam, if you can keep it, end quote. Keeping it has always depended on accessible education, now more than ever. Thank you. Okay, yes, you can. So my question is this. Uh -huh. Several weeks ago, a group of students here uh, put a shroud over Mr. Jefferson's statue mm -hmm. uh, and put up signs uh, that he was a rapist racist. Mm -hmm. And so how do you, as a Jefferson expert, mm -hmm. respond to those students? Um, and uh, if you can let us know. Uh, I thought maybe we'd have three or four soft questions before we, you know, <laughs> just so I could get warmed up. Uh, Jefferson was a great believer in free speech. And so I think Jefferson, on the one hand, would, um, I mean, he, he also was not one that ever expected statues would be put up to himself. On the one hand, what the, the basic principle the students were operating on, and again, I want, it's not all students who put that up. It was a small group of students. There were students who were very concerned about things that are going on in this country. And they chose to express their concerns in a way that was very controversial, provocative. And they did so because they wanted to call attention to other issues. The problem has been that instead we're focused on their showing disrespect for Thomas Jefferson. And so I, I regret that that has become the message that's taken away from it. So I don't think they achieved what they wanted to achieve by putting it up. So I think it was, um, I think it was a mistake. But again, I don't want to take away from the things they're concerned about. I don't think that Jefferson is the great source for everything that's wrong in this country. Um, Jefferson said a lot of different things. He was clearly anti-slavery in principle, but he kept slaves his whole life. He also wrote some frankly racist things in a book that are very troubling. Jefferson also preached values of rational inquiry. And when he was challenged on some racist things that he wrote in a book by an African-American, he said, uh, I welcome all of the evidence that you can muster to the contrary. I would like nothing better than to be proved wrong. So at the end of the day, what mattered most to Jefferson was that truth went out. 
And I think that we will lose a lot in this country if we don't identify that that is the chief thing that Jefferson wanted, was free, rational inquiry to try to find out the truth, and he was prepared to be proven wrong. So, um, as you probably, I'm sure you, and you even stated that the legislature has continued to decrease the amount of money that's going to higher education. Um, I don't think we're back to anything close to what we were prior to the yeah. recent recession. And there was one article in the Richmond Times Dispatch that pointed this out, but no one seems to, none of our reporters seem to take the legislature to task when they, when they uh, blame the universities for increasing tuition while at the same time they've pulled money from the university. Uh, how do you, and this sort of ties in with your most recent comment here, it seems that there doesn't seem to be much attempt at being objective in reporting um, these, there seems to be one side that seems to be focused on, and sometimes, as you pointed out here, it, it's counter to the actual intent of the people, um, you know, the statement that people want to make. So my question really is, how do we return education to the kind of thing that Jefferson would have intended, and that is to have people who would be interested in actually getting at the truth? Well, uh, I would say, I, I know a lot of faculty members at UVA, and I know lots of students at UVA, and I would say that there is a commitment to doing that here, and there has been at other universities I've taught at. I think the problem comes that there is a disconnect between the university and the public. Now, there's not a disconnect with those of you who are alums, um, but there are some Virginia Tech grads out there. <laughs> and, and part of that's on us. In the, a big part of it's on us. Uh, by us, I mean professors. Uh, I think we have not done a good job, to say the least, in recent years about mingling with the public, uh, listening, and explaining what we try to do. Uh, there has been more of a tendency to turn inward. And I think we have to do a much better job. That's one of the reasons why I welcome opportunities to, to talk and, and to hear your thoughts and questions and to go around the state and meet with people um, because I need to know more. And I think we need to do a better job of explaining that we are trying to maintain those core principles that Jefferson had of rational inquiry. I gotta turn this off, okay. Did that respond to your question? Okay. About uh, 10 miles west of Richmond on River Road is Tuckahoe Plantation and the folks who run Tuckahoe Plantation will tell you that Jefferson's earliest formal education occurred there. Uh -huh. I'm wondering um, what do we know of a factual nature about that education and how did his earliest education compare to that of the other founders? Well, Jefferson's, uh, his first school he went to was at Tuckahoe Plantation. This was a common phenomenon. Uh, so this was a plantation of the Randolph family. And uh, so a wealthy family, they would hire a tutor, and uh, primarily for the benefit of their own children, but then they would invite their friends to send their children there, and who would help to share the cost of it. And so these would be small schools. They'd be conducted in very small, specialized buildings. They would be for the families of, these, uh, of wealthy people. And so Jefferson's much better educated than your uh, typical person of Albemarle County. How does it compare to other founders? Well, he then went on to uh, the equivalent of an academy that was taught here in Albemarle County by uh, Parson Maori, which and he described it as a, a, an excellent scholar, an excellent um, 
classical scholar, new Latin, new Greek. And those languages were essential if you really wanted to distinguish yourself as belonging to the highest class. And that enabled him then to go to the College of William and Mary, where everybody was expected to know some Latin and Greek. He's one of about 50 young men who are going to William and Mary at the time, and it's the only college in Virginia. Of the people who were, say, at the, the people we call the founders, primarily the people who wrote the Constitution or the Declaration of Independence, I think it's fair to say that about half of them had college educations, and Jefferson was one of them. Good morning. Good morning. Um, thank you for being here to mingle with us. It's easy to understand now why this was a sellout this morning. And, uh, and I want you to know you've inspired me to go to the bookstore and buy a bonnet. <laughs> and some brandy, I hope. <laughs> yeah, they'll get in trouble. Okay. Um, it, it feels like we, as a country, could use a booster shot of both virtue and reason. Mm -hmm. And if our national leadership needed remedial training in those things 230-ish years ago, they sure as hell do now. Mm -hmm. So will your next book address that? Might, might, you, might you offer any suggestions for how we can bring those priorities forward? Well, you're assuming that national leaders read books. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, if, I, if I can figure out how to boil down the book into a tweet, I may have a chance. Uh, no, uh, your, your question's a serious one. Uh, one would, would like to think that history would inform uh, how we think about serious issues in this country. And I think we would do a better job about addressing serious questions in a serious way, and I think we don't sufficiently engage with these important issues in a truly serious way in our public discourse. Uh, I think too often there's an attempt to shout down perspectives we don't agree with. Uh, there is a tendency to uh, be dismissive of objectivity, to say it's, it's not possible, and therefore any opinion is as good as any other opinion, um, which means just whoever can shout loudest will prevail. Uh, I do think that the issues facing this country are so serious. They've always been serious. Right? This is a country that's dealt with a lot of major problems in every generation and has done so most of the time pretty well. And they've done so because I think at the end of the day, there was a certain commitment to a kind of rational weighing of the evidence to reach conclusions and to reach compromises. And now it seems like compromise is just a dirty word. That you're, like, you're a sellout if you make any compromise with the other side. Well, you can't govern this country. The constitutional framework is one that was meant to inhibit anything getting, getting done unless there was a kind of broad consensus. And that's where we're at. So uh, I do, uh, on the one hand, I would like for history to inform and to get people to see the virtues of compromise and of listening. But given the state of things, there's, there's not a lot of evidence that reading a history book is going to change that. What's going to change it is voters expecting better than they're getting right now at every level of government. Good morning, Professor Taylor. I just wanted to kind of add to the gentleman's previous question. Do you think the original definition of virtue applies to the mission of the universities of today? Uh, I think it should. Uh, I do think that if we're just, 
We're bombarded in our culture by messages that are uh, about individual consumption and uh, that, that we're supposed to measure our worth in terms of the things we own. And so we, I think you need some other set of values, whatever they can be, and they can be a variety of ones. I don't think the university should, treat, should teach one kind of canonical set of virtues and say this is the only way to be virtuous. But I do think the university should encourage young people to think about what do you define as the common good in this country and what can you do to help to achieve it in your lifetime. And if we can encourage young people to make their own choices as to what that is, we will have done a very good thing at the university. Um, uh, I have a question back to history about Jefferson's education at his time. But first, I would like to make a comment that reporters report and the gentlemen's concerns have, should be addressed on the editorial pages and have been even in the notoriously conservative Richmond Times-Dispatch as far as education's role currently. But my question is, uh, during Jefferson's time, uh, how would you uh, fit in the ideas of people like Benjamin Franklin towards education and institutions that preceded the university like UNC or Hampton Sydney? We don't mention any university before you. Yeah. <laughs> uh -huh. uh, in, in, Virginians were not united in politics or in religion of that time. So Hampton Sydney was uh, founded primarily by Presbyterians. Um, and Jefferson was not fond of Presbyterians, and they weren't fond of Jefferson. <laughs> so he, uh, one of the, Jefferson wanted to provide something that would be different. There was a reason, he wanted a very secular university. And uh, UNC was founded for many reasons that Virginia was. The Virginians, one of the reasons why they were always willing to open their pockets a bit to fund this is they become persuaded that there are young people going to college in the North that they are learning the wrong ideas. <laughs> and they want to come back and change Virginia. Uh, so we would like for the voters to have been entirely you know, enlightened, progressive, and thinking why they were funding this, but the reality is that, that there were mixed motives. And UNC was just ahead of Virginia in deciding they needed to keep their young men at home. And so public universities were actually created in the South before they were created in the North. But they were primarily concerned out of a certain defensiveness about regional identity that they felt was being challenged if their young men went off to northern institutions. It was an exaggerated fear because those young men, a large number did go to Harvard, Yale, Princeton, and they almost all came back to Virginia and remained good, true sons of Virginia or North Carolina. But it was the fear. Thank you. So given economics, I liked your summary about uh, tuition and uh, student loans, blah, blah, blah. And I like to give money to the university and scholarships and let people be educated. And it, but it still gets to me like how much it costs and who's in charge of like why does it cost so much? And so maybe can you offer an historical perspective on like how much it costs to go to UVA in 1890 versus 1930 versus 2017? And is there any way to like capture that knowledge? And I've tried to, but it gets really confusing right. how things are spent and who's in right. charge of this budget so right. that education doesn't get so prohibitively expensive. Right. Uh, it's not professors' salaries. What are you saying? Okay. Okay, so, you know, this is what goes on, is that there's, you know, people finger point the finger at what the 
cost is and where these costs come from. Uh, you know, professors say it's there's too many administrators. Um, and uh, administrators will say, and I think quite reasonably, that there are all sorts of mandates that are imposed on the university by state legislatures and the federal government that require them to set up the office for this or office for that in order to be in compliance. Uh, so universities are often asked every year to do more, uh, and while the, the public funds coming to them are less. It also was the case that in flush times, a lot of schools felt they had to compete by providing uh, broader amenities for their students. So there's a lot of infrastructure that is quality of life infrastructure that's different from what colleges provided a century or two ago. Now, we're going to go to a football game. We're going to enjoy that. There were no football teams in Jefferson's day, right? There was no football coach. There were about uh, eight faculty members. There was no president. There were no administrators other than the faculty. Uh, it was a radically different kind of place, and yet it was prohibitively expensive. It was the most expensive university in America. Now, the primary reason was because Jefferson chose to spend the money that the state had given to the university to build nice buildings. And there was no money left for scholarship. And then the university was dependent upon operating costs for tuition. So the conundrums of funding education go very deep in our history. And that's one of the points of the book that I want to make, is that these kinds of choices are painful choices, and they've been made all the time. The first public scholarships at UVA are not made available until the 1840s, and they're a relatively small number. There were more um, charitable fellowships available at the College of William and Mary in the colonial period than there were after the Revolution. So on the one hand, the leaders are saying, we need to broaden public education. We need to make it available to people who can't afford it. And then they weren't able to deliver on that. And it's really come the 20th century that there is a major investment by the public in broadening access to it. And a big part of it, I think, is the GI Bill, which more than anything enabled people to go to college for the first time. But it was part of a general principle that if you want the economy to grow and you want the society to be truly equal in opportunity, you need to provide education that's accessible to all. And I do think that we have retreated from that premise in recent years in facing the same kind of tough budgetary choices that we've always had to face. One last question. <laughs> Thank you very much for coming. This, this was fabulous. It's my understanding that Jefferson enjoyed his education at William & Mary while he was there. What later caused him to be disaffected from the college? Uh, a variety of things. He, he proposed a reform package for the college that would uh, uh, essentially uh, strip it of its Anglican identity and make it a secular college and mandated new professorships, a professorship of law, a professorship of medicine, get rid of the professors of divinity. And the reforms did not entirely take hold. Uh, there was a lot of local resistance to it in Williamsburg and vicinity for a variety of reasons. And then it's just that Williamsburg was a dying city at that time. The state capital had been moved out to Richmond. There's really no economic geographic reason to have Williamsburg if it's not a capital. It's in a terrible location. You know, it's not a navigable waterway. Uh, and there are a lot of mosquitoes there, and the mosquitoes carry malaria. So the tidewater in general, but Williamsburg in particular, was declining relative to the rest of the state. Population was shifting into the Piedmont, which was healthier. 
uh, this was the economically vibrant part of the state. So part of it is these reforms didn't take, and the other part is Jefferson just decided that Williamsburg was a terrible place for young men to go, that they were all going to die of malaria. <laughs> he didn't like the professors that they had there come 1810 or so. And so he felt, let's just get rid of William and Mary. Because, you know, he didn't just want to coexist with William and Mary. He wanted to take their money away, <laughs> reduce it to an academy, and use the money to do more things at UVA, right? And there was a big struggle in 1824 to 25, not just to create UVA, but to see if they could steal, well, I don't want to say steal, uh, <laughs> take away the endowment from William and Mary, which would have been an act of confiscation because it was a privately chartered corporation. Uh, and it turns out that a, a lot of good lawyers in Virginia say you can't do that. <laughs> so William and Mary survived sort of and it staggered on um, and didn't do very well. I'm just stating the facts. It's a fine school. I taught there for two years. Uh, until the 20th century when it, when it revived. 